0: But let me say, just as a way of testimony, I'm just a guy with a wife and four kids trying to bestow on his kids some way to function in this world that may be becoming increasingly hostile towards Christianity. At the very least, we are 2,000 years removed from that culture in which Jesus Christ operated. We're 2,000 years removed from that early church that was functioning in that period of time. And we have... Two thousand years of church history that has molded this generation 's opinion of Jesus Christ and the church, whether that opinion is right or wrong, we are here today with uh in the environment that we find ourselves in uh, not uh not this we, we're in a uh, I think there are similarities and differences, but this is where we find ourselves today, so we have this culture that uh Christianity during the last 2,000 years has functioned as a political entity. You know, it was burdened by all the problems and issues that come from a church acting as a political entity. You know, we see in history, we see the corruption, we see the uh, waging war, we see things that have happened in the past, maintaining a position of power and influence. And so here we are today. I find myself needing to teach my kids how to function as followers of Christ in this culture today where God's placed us. And you've heard the news, you've heard loaded questions, you've heard politically charged questions, hot-button issues. You've heard questions posed to Christians very publicly. You've heard Christians exercise their faith in public ways, in the culture, outside of Sunday morning. And you've seen the hysteria that results when a Christian may answer a question incorrectly, or may exercise their faith in a way that offends somebody else, you know? And so here I am trying to teach my kids how to do this, and I decided, I became very interested in how the rabbi and how the Messiah, uh, Yeshua, you know, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, how did he function in his culture? Here he was faced with various factions that were hostile towards his mission and towards his message, you know any number of them, from the Roman government on to uh, religious people with his in, within his own his own uh, geographical community. And how did he function? And I'd like to start with Matthew twenty-two. If you'd like to turn there a second, my wife told me first service I didn't give enough time to turn to the scripture. So I guess you're supposed to listen to the pages rustling, and when they stop, then you can proceed. You're you're familiar with the passage already. Uh, this is the Pharisees, of course, attempting to entangle him in his words, as you know, <laughs> as it might happen today. Uh, Matthew twenty-two. I'm in verse fifteen. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. They sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, "Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, nor." Uh, You are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful for any man to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to him, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said Caesar's. And he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. So this is an example of the kind of question that Jesus was posed with, and this is not an unusual form that these questions took when there was a party hostile against Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And what we see here is, of course, a faction that wants to entangle They're hostile towards Jesus and his message. We have factions today that are hostile towards Christians and their message, and they're trying to entangle him in his words so that they can create a big production out of it out of his answer. And we've seen that happen today. If he answers one way, he gets the Romans mad at him. If he answers another way, he gets the Jews mad at him. He finds door number three and he goes through it and he does not answer the question directly in a way that that accomplishes the Pharisees' goals for him there. So we have a familiar setting. We have a hot button issue. We have Jesus on his mission to carry out his redemptive work and redeem all of mankind, and we have somebody who views that as a political threat. That sounds familiar to the situation we find ourselves in today and that Christians find themselves in today repeatedly. That Jesus does not directly answer the question. Now, I, today I don't hold a seminary degree. I'm not a pastor. I like sitting behind the piano off in that little corner over there, as you've noticed, um, so, feel free to disagree with any conclusions that I might draw today. I'm just a guy uh, interested in, in Rabbi, the Messiah, Yeshua, and the ways that he answers these questions posed of him. We have a lot of them recorded. One guy counted 81 unique questions that Jesus Christ was, answered, was asked by other people, if you sort them out and take out the, the duplicates from the other Gospels. A number of these were hostile. Another number of them came from hostile parties. You've got the one I just uh, the one I just the example I just pointed out paying taxes to Caesar. You've got uh, you remember the story of the woman accused of adultery where Jesus scribbled in the sand. Hostile questions from uh, people with a political or a doctrinal axe to grind uh, of Jesus Christ and his disciples have questions for him and don't don't we have questions too? You know Jesus, why didn't you do this for me? You know my question is you know how does Jesus approach questions that were asked him and we live in a world of questions here's a few what's so funny about peace love and understanding does anyone really know what time it is and where have all the flowers gone isn't life strange who will stop the rain have you ever seen the rain should I stay or should I go who will save your soul how can you mend a broken heart tell me why When will I be loved? Where did our love go? Do you know where you're going to? Why do fools fall in love? Who let the dogs out? (laughs) War, what's it good for? Do you want to know a secret? Wouldn't it be nice? Do you know the way to San Jose? All right, and we live in a world of questions. Now, some are more serious than that. Tundale published uh, a book. Now, the questions Christians hope nobody will ask. What they did is they surveyed a 1,000 questions, the Barna Group did. And Mark uh, Middleberg wrote, uh, wrote that book that I just mentioned. And based on that survey, and these are a bit more serious, how could a good God allow so much suffering? And you'll hear this posed different ways. Why did God answer your prayer for a parking spot, but not my prayer for a friend who's dying of cancer? Or uh, why, why did God require the death of the innocent? You know, in the point of view, they ask her, why would God require the death of innocent people in the Old Testament? So how could God allow so much suffering if he's good? Why should I believe that heaven and hell exist? Or why would a good God send anyone to an eternity in hell? Why do you condemn homosexuals? Why trust the Bible? It's full of myths. Or why does the Bible contradict itself? That's a similar question that you hear. Why are Christians so judgmental? Sure, Jesus was a good man. Why make him into the Son of God, too? Didn't evolution put God out of a job? Why are Christians so obsessed with abortion? What makes you so sure God even exists? Christians are hypocrites, so why should I listen to you? And you'll hear these questions asked by both honest seekers, and you'll hear them asked by hostile parties. These are the top question, top ten questions uh, Christians are afraid to answer. I've got a few that aren't on here that I'm probably afraid to answer. But I noticed as I was considering the way Jesus approached questions in the New Testament, Jesus does not answer all questions directly. He doesn't come out with the answer. He comes out many times on another question, uh, the taxes to Caesar example. I've got a, I'll have got read uh, Matthew 22 in a second here. But here we've got a gotcha question from another group holding a false doctrine that has a political axe to grind or a religious axe to grind with a. With, uh, doctrine that they don't hold. Uh, This is Matthew 22. The Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection think that they got a clever question to ask of people that do. You'll see similar groups today come up with their little questions that they think are very clever ways to discredit Christianity. You'll see the same thing here. The same day Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow "'and raise up offspring for his brother.'" All right, so there's a point of law. "'Now there were seven brothers among us. "'The first married and died, "'and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. "'So too the second and third, down to the seventh. "'After them all, the woman died. "'In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, "'whose wife will she be? "'For they all had her. "'Jesus answered them, "'You are wrong.'" Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are the angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. I chose this question, I put it up front on my list, because it is one instance, I don't think there's very many of these, where he does answer a question directly. We have a point of doctrine where the Sadducees are, are way off base. Jesus wastes no time in correcting them and putting them in, in the place where they should be, and I wanted to point that out, where there is a point of doctrine. And somebody thought they had a clever question discrediting that doctrine. You know, Jesus came right back and didn't even accept the basis of the question. He did not even accept the premise. He just came right back and said, you're wrong. And I think there are instances where it's okay to say, you know what, you're wrong. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to Luke 10, Luke chapter 10. This is another familiar story because it's the question asked by the young lawyer that led to the parable of the Good Samaritan. And this is Luke uh, chapter 10, verse 25 through 37. So, behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? All right, so once again, Jesus answers a question with a question. And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who's my neighbor? And now you're all familiar with the response, because here's where Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. A couple things I notice there. First, he does answer the question with a question. Second, he answers the following question with an illustration. Again, not direct answers. Either he answers with a question or he answers with an illustration. Now, there is another instance where Jesus does not answer at all. It's when his authority is challenged, I'm sorry I did not write the reference down. Let me read to you what I have, though. One day, this will be familiar to you, too. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, The chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us, by what authority you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? So here he goes again. No, 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 I got a question for you. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say, for man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to him, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So the two things I took away from that, once, once again, you know, Jesus did not directly answer the question. Actually, he, he ends up not answering this question at all. First, he answers with a question. And second, he says, well, I'm not telling you. He may respond enigmatically. He may respond in a way that seems confusing at first and requires some thinking. You're familiar with John 3. And I'll read, uh, I'll read John 3, 1 through 15. I'll stop just short of John three sixteen. I think you all know that one. This is Nicodemus. He comes to Jesus by night to ask him some questions. I think he's an honest seeker. I don't, think, uh, I, don't, I don't classify him as a hostile person towards Jesus' message and his ministry. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we who speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And then he goes into John 3.16, which, as you know, is probably one of the clearest presentations of the gospel in Scripture. So Jesus, once again, does not directly answer Nicodemus' question. Instead, he takes Nicodemus kind of on a little journey here. By asking him probing questions, he reflects them right back at him. So I think as I look at these, I begin to see that Jesus is interested in more than just giving uh, simple or academic answers to the questions that are posed of him. Jesus answers questions with questions. He answers with illustrations. He, answer, he refuses to answer a question at all. There's a number of approaches he takes that is entirely different than the way I grew up thinking somebody should answer a philosophical or theological posed question posed to him. Here I am thinking that Christians should have all the answers and should just be able to answer any question outright and directly without considering maybe what the asker really needs to hear or considering what the asker's real intent is. And so uh, Jesus answers questions with questions and I've got a, a few quick hits here. Uh, this is the Monday Morning Review from the Emmanuel Fellowship Church, and they did, they did some of the work for me. Uh, I'll, I'll quickly hit these. Matthew 9, then John's disciples came and asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he's with them? Uh, Matthew 15, then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? Matthew 15. His disciples answered, How could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Matthew 21. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You have ordained praise. Mark 4. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked about the parables. Then Jesus said to them, Don't you understand this parable? How well then will you understand any parable? Jesus was in the stern. This is uh, Mark 4. Uh, Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. His disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? He asked. Some Pharisees came and tested him. This is Mark 10. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. A few more here. A certain ruler asked him in Luke 18. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one's good except God alone. Luke 24, one of them named Cleopas asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things, he asked. Uh, John, John 6, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to him, Does this offend you? Again and again and again, Jesus is answering questions with questions, and I started to wonder why. Now, if I had a pat answer for why he did that, that would probably go against kind of the theme of this message. <laughs> and, and I don't. I have some things i thought about. Yeah, and I have this exact reason why Jesus did that. Now, first of all, I do teach my kids that you do not always have to answer a philosophical or a theological question directly, especially when posed by a hostile party. My basis for that, Jesus didn't. I tell them, you hear, the, you know, hear that? Person, you know, hear that person on the news answering that question directly? You don't have to do that. Maybe people don't need to hear the direct answer to that question. Jesus certainly didn't think so in quite a bit of the circumstances that I've examined in, in the Gospels. So one takeaway, I, you kids, you don't always have to answer a question directly. If someone asks you a, a gotcha question, if someone asks you a question, don't be afraid to answer it indirectly or with an illustration or with a question or not at all. That's perfectly legitimate. We hear that a lot. Answer the question, answer the question, answer the question. No, you don't have to. Those uh, Second of all, as for his questions, um, and, and and don't we have questions for God, you know? God, why didn't you do this for me? Or why did you allow this to happen? I, You know, I, I started wondering, how would Jesus answer that? He'd probably reflect a question right back at me. We saw a couple questions that the disciples had that might be very similar. I wonder if Jesus would say to me, are you so dull? <laughs> you know, I bet you he would say that to me sometimes. But I, I expect that sometimes when I question God, I get a Jesus question right back at me, is what I think about that. I, but I think that just maybe Jesus, I, I don't know, I, I have no way of knowing Jesus' motivation for responding this way, whether it was just from that period of time a form of, of uh, rabbinical rhetoric a a rhetorical form that the rabbis used at the time, I don't know. But maybe he was more interested in what the question could accomplish in a person's life than what the answer, the direct answer to the question, could do in a person's life. So maybe the question is more valuable than the answer is. That may be the case here. I'm going to go to 1 Corinthians 1. There are answers to questions that are not going to satisfy the academics and the politicians. It's just not going to happen. And the Apostle Paul knew that full well. I'm going to read verses 18 to 25. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning will I thwart. <laughs> Where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand a sign. And Greeks seek wisdom. Made me wonder what Americans seek, you know, what The politicians seek what academia seeks. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing to the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom of God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption, so that it is as written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. So we have the factions and their demands. We have the scribe. We have the uh, debater of this age, the wise. You know, we have the academics. We have, the, we have those in politics. Each of them demands something So it occurred to me today. We have the same factions, and they make the same demands. You know, what do politicians demand? What what does academia demand? What does the wise, the scribe, the debater demand? But what I've found, or what I've concluded, is that God acts in ways purposely to make their heads explode. This is the way God functions, and this is the way Jesus functioned. He would say things that would drive people up the wall. So I've concluded it's not my business to try to win over politics or academia to my, to my beliefs. It might not happen. Yeah, I might save some. I'm not saying that some of the great apologists, Ravi Zacharias and some of the great people that are called to do that very thing, you know, shouldn't do it. Paul wasn't interested in winning those people over to his point of view. And Jesus certainly didn't do it either. You know, Jesus got sent to the cross by those factions. He didn't win them over. He didn't win over the Romans. He didn't win over the Pharisees. Not all of them, maybe some of them, but not enough to keep him from going to the cross. And he wasn't certainly a failure in his mission because he didn't win people over to the gospel. Actually, his victory came about because of the opposition. So I've decided it's not my job to try to win over those people by giving them clever or you know brilliant answers to these questions. Maybe the questions are worth more. So no, I'm not always going to directly answer a question. I'm not going to tell my kids that they have to directly answer philosophical questions or theological questions that come from these parties that want some answer that will satisfy them. It's just not going to do it. And I'm not going to do it because Jesus didn't do it. So I'm going to go to Jesus, the great rabbi, the messiah. I'm going to look at how he lived his life. I have like I said, I don't have a pat answer for this and that would go against everything that I'm that I'm talking about here. But those are some of the things that I've concluded that that my family and I will embrace the value that tough questions present to us. If Jesus asks these questions, there's got to be a good reason for it. I have not completely figured out why or what Jesus' motivation was or what these questions have accomplished. Like I said, there's a whole bunch of them. There's the questions asked of Christ, the hostile ones, the ones that are not hostile, the ones Christ posed. There's any number of them. But I've decided that maybe the questions are more valuable than the answers. And maybe it's more valuable to the asker if we answer some questions with questions rather than trying to be, rather than me trying to be Mr. Bible Answer Man, you know, and, and who knows everything and can answer all of your questions about everything that is difficult to, to think about God. I use the phrase, God is beautiful, complex and beautiful. To me, that means God, you know, you. You do a lot of things that may make me uncomfortable, but you are my God and I will worship you anyway. That's generally what, what I mean by that when I say that. And so, uh, Michael Card wrote a song based on 1 Corinthians one nineteen through 25, which I read earlier. Um, looks like I'm going to close early, but in, clo- in closing, I'd like to, to sing that one for you. Give me a second while I shift over. I'm going to turn the piano back on, you guys. So this is a song Michael Card wrote about the tough questions and it kind of reflects my thinking about those tough questions.